We're just talking about in, in the break how Jesus to Athens is a big task to get through all of that. So um, let's get right into it. So in order to get to Athens, um, in order to, to kind of go through this story um, bit by bit, it's important as we, as we begin this part. So this, this provides me and provides us with a little bit of a biblical framework of how we can think about this, and it's not linear. I would say it's messy as well, um, as we can see through the story. Um, but we'll start here. Before we get to Athens, though, I want to focus on, uh, on Pentecost. And so from Jesus to Pentecost is an interesting thing that happens. From Jesus to Pentecost, a lot goes on in between the moment when Jesus says he's leaving and when he actually leaves and when the Holy Spirit actually comes. And you know what? I got to say, I'm, not, I'm no expert on the Holy Spirit in a, in a way that is going to go deep into all the aspects and the intricacies and the dimensions of what the Holy Spirit can do. But I'm going to talk about the reaction of the disciples a lot um, in how they responded to that. Uh, so Jesus to Pentecost is where we're going to focus on uh, this first part. And if we can get to it near the end of today, uh, this first session, then we'll get to Athens as well, which will be very hard. But if not, we'll go after lunch into there, okay? So on the night Jesus was betrayed, um, Jesus shocked everyone. You have to understand how shocked the disciples were when Jesus starts talking about leaving. But before he leaves, let's just paint the scene here for a moment. Everyone, um, everyone is alarmed before that uh, announcement because Jesus comes and he takes off um, a piece of clothing. He wraps it around himself and his waist and he goes and starts to wash the disciples' feet. So this is the scene in which Jesus... Um, he wants to demonstrate here for a moment what this servant leadership is. He wants to come back at the table and look everyone in the eye. And, and he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. So he layers this foundation of action and demonstrating this is the kind of leadership I want you to have. And after this, Jesus gets into his sermon. Um, with that atmosphere and with them feeling quite uh, vulnerable of someone touching their feet, especially their teacher touching their feet, in that place of vulnerability and in that uh, emotions that they would have, Jesus begins to lay out some final words to his disciples before he gets arrested. So for me, this is like the epitome. I cannot believe this God is doing this to me. There's nothing better than this Jesus and this this Jesus, this Messiah, who I'm going to follow for the rest of my life, Jesus suddenly says um, this line here. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, and I will be with you only a little longer. You will see me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then after he says this, he says, um, a new command I give to you, to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this, this whole, he's giving a lot of infrastructure to the way in which the commands will be functioning afterwards. But the key thing, when I ever read this passage before, I was big and I had lots of different sermons on this idea of the new command. Very exciting. But if I was a disciple at that time, the only things I'm hearing is Jesus is leaving. Because... <laughs> like, Yes, great, new command, wonderful. But really, if I'm a disciple of that, I'm thinking, no, 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 that doesn't sound right. Um, 
you are the God who just washed my feet, and now you're about to leave, and you're about to go from, from me. And so Jesus and says, I'm not even leaving, and you can try to find me later. Like, you cannot even find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so Peter actually says, like, he says, where are you going? And, um, and Peter wants to know where he's going because he probably doesn't think he's going to die, per se, even though he gives lots of hints to that. He's like, where are you going? He's actually asking, where is this location you are going? <clears throat> and I want, I want to just communicate how obvious of a question that would have been because it's, un, it's important to understand that following Jesus was their life for the past three years. Like, that was the mantra in which they engaged their relationship, follow me. So following the concrete physical Jesus uh, was the only job description they were given since they joined the cause. And now that the one mandate is being disrupted by this one statement, just follow me. I'm going where you can't come. Like, it's contradictory to say those two things at the same time. Because the physical Jesus on earth, the leader where they were able to tangibly, physically follow, and you could say, if I were going to use the terms that we used before, the very linear path in which a concrete Jesus showed, like, he's going there, I can just follow him there, and I can watch him do the things. Nothing is abstract about that aspect of Jesus. Jesus was showing them by a physical example of where he was going. It's the only mode in which he knew, they knew to follow Jesus was a tangible, physical Jesus, incarnated God to follow. So when that happens, and Jesus is that concrete example, which I would argue if I were to go in this, which I'm not going to go into much, is that concrete example of Jesus, if you have any desire to interpret passages or uh, try, if there's any sense of ambiguity in any Thing that I say communicated here and we are in this either or type of world where everything is subjective, the one thing we can do that the disciples had the uh, privilege of seeing themselves and what we get the privilege of seeing in the gospels is a concrete physical Jesus, God incarnate in this world as the example to follow as we figure out how to discern a pathway forward. Because the concrete Jesus example is our knowledge of what God looks like. Incarnation is significant, and this might sound obvious, but it's really sometimes not. But um, the concrete example of Jesus is that we actually see God through Jesus. Jesus exegetes God, right? And because Jesus exegetes God, every time God in the Old Testament does something wacky or whatnot, we can always interpret that abstract God with the concrete example of a life lived. So if God was on earth, this is what he would do. So if we're trying to interpret things in the past or even interpret this mysterious God uh, in the past before, as majestic as we is, it's important for us to be able to see Jesus as that example. And so Philip comes into the conversation. He says, look, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, we'll be good. So if you're going to leave, show us the Father and we'll be good. Leave us that parting gift, the Father. And then Jesus says, don't you know? Like, have I not been with you so long and you still did not know me in uh, John 14, verse 9 to 10? He says, don't you not know me, Philip, who has seen, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, uh, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, you, I do not speak with my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me 
does his works. And so this brings us to the very important point that being a disciple of Jesus revolves around the notion that Jesus is the central reference point uh, in the way that we see God. To follow God is to follow Jesus. I know, sounds really obvious, but actually when we try to get into that mode of, uh, say, that Dallas Willard Hearing God book that you just gave away, or when we ask you to um, pray and discern what God's words are, or when you're thinking about listening to the, to the Holy Spirit and God, well, let me tell you, whatever you hear is not going to be far from the vicinity of the example of Jesus, okay? That's the way I rein things in, because I got a lot, there's a lot of wacko, <laughs> there's a lot of wacko interpretations of what God can speak and what God can do, all right? So what's going to rein me in? What's going to be the anchor that helps this boat from not swaying too far off from that central place. It's actually going to be the concrete example of Jesus. Because the incarnation, we draw our definition of God through the person of Jesus. So Alan Hirsch is a missiologist. He says, it is true that Jesus is like God. But the greater truth, particularly to us humans who have limited scope of what God can be, but the greater truth, one closer to the revelation of God, that Jesus ushers in is that God is like Jesus. So I'm kind of playing with words here. He's, but that's pretty accurate to say. God is like Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is a translation of what God looks like, right? Jesus is the word in flesh. And so uh, an archbishop, Michael Ramsey, says, God is Christ-like. That's a funny way to put it, right? God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. Is that a word? Unchrist-likeness at all. So this is important. Understanding God is like Jesus gives us a more concrete example, and I repeat that over and over again, but that's important because of where we can take the scriptures, where you can take interpretation, and I would say a lazy version of following the Holy Spirit is not in drenching yourself in the gospel of the life of Jesus. If you don't surround yourself and the life of Jesus becomes unconscious to you, then when you listen to God and you don't have that, it, it, it allows for tangents to go out all over the place that doesn't ground us in what, um, what is central. Because I believe also in the life of Jesus, he helps us to prioritize because Jesus chose certain things to do and not things to do. And his priority of where he placed his his people he would meet with, who he chose to redeem, and also in the gospel stories, which gospel stories seem to rise to the surface, all those things, if you acknowledge, and I don't have time to get into all those, but if you see the emphases of the gospel, those emphases should reflect in this exploration in the new territory, unknown territory. Those are emphases that should also ring true to the pattern of Jesus' life. So I just say this to help us narrow this, this in. So as we read on, Jesus begins talking about how his disciples are going to have to continue on without him, right? And so this is the first, <clears throat> if I were to say this is the first individual exhortation to them, all right? I'm leaving everyone, and he's not calling them as a church to go out and do anything. He's just saying, I'm leaving. So you're going to have to live without me. And so if I'm, if I, you know, that dichotomy between individual and collective. So I'm going to start off with the individual here. This is this first. Jesus the Pentecost is very individual basis. He says, all right, so now that I'm leaving you, uh, you will see me. You're going to, there's, I'm going to leave you with something. I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave you hanging over here. So while I'm up here in the sky and Jesus literally ascending, the disciples 
are panicked, I would imagine, awestrucken of how Jesus is ascending, and it says they wait around for the Holy Spirit. Let me just, because um, they were told this Holy Spirit is coming. They don't know what form. They don't know what is going to happen. They don't know the fire is going to be on top of their head. They don't know any of that stuff yet. So I want you to understand how chaotic it must have felt in their souls and also a part of them. I just imagine the dialogue they were having post-ascension, um, the discussions of what's going to happen. They draw straw. Like, they do all these funny things at the end. Who knows if it's the right way to do it, but they just went on and did things and tried to figure out. But what's one thing they did that was very important is they were together in a room and they waited. Um, and for some reason, togetherness in a room, waiting, uh, is significant in that it was not individuals seeking the Lord on their own, waiting for the Holy Spirit. It signifies to me that there was intentional carving out of time in which waiting occurred, um, where there was a possibility of interaction with other believers with a shared narrative. And you can go far with what I'm just saying right here, which I'm not going to harp on too much, but if you just try to emulate waiting for the Holy Spirit together as a group, let me... In, a, in, in, a, in an age of progress and getting things done, that is the antithesis of what we as churches want to do. You know, like, I believe that what you did yesterday, like with this um, gathering here to try to hear the Lord, is a rarity in many places. And usually we just use it as a means to an end. Right? That's another part of modernity. We tend to utilize uh, uh, a utilitarian use of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, well, how can I use it as a means to an end? I'm going to use the Holy Spirit to pull out gift things or use the Holy Spirit to show me where to go because where, where to go is really important. But actually waiting for the Holy Spirit, whether it is using for purpose but also just presence with the Holy Spirit and desiring, if I were the disciples, desiring I just need my Jesus, I need closeness to Jesus, Again, And if Jesus is not going to be here, whatever he said is coming that's going to resemble a little bit like Jesus, I don't know what that's going to show up, whether it's a physical, spiritual, I don't know what it is. It's going to come. I want to be with my Lord again. That, I believe, is an authentic, true uh, view of the Holy Spirit that I sense would probably be the motivation of the waiting. So when you are, usually for me, <laughs> my times of silence and waiting, when I go on a silent retreat, for example, and I bunker myself in there and I'll, uh, and try to seek the Lord, what is it? It's for discernment. It's to figure out what my next role is going to be or my next occupation or my path. And it's very like, give me the goods Holy Spirit, because I need to move on with my life. Thank you for that. Okay, I'll see you later when I need to discern again. And that's how I use, that's me, maybe not you, but like, that's how I use it. But if we sit on this for a moment, and you can take this in discussion later um, in, in, in the church, another time in small groups or whatever, but when you actually can legitimize the season of waiting as a space in itself in which church happens, rather than we do the waiting so that we can get to real church later, and see it as an ends to itself rather than a means to an end, I believe there will be a, a lot of breakthrough uh, and a lot of restored relationship with Christ that takes away the uh, utilitarian value of it, all right? 
But I am also talking about the fact that it is useful to do it. But I want to just make that point here for a moment, that waiting seemed, waiting also in community, not in my silent retreats, is also significant. Because when you're in community, the physical realities of other people around you waiting, there's a momentum in that, right? I don't know what happened last night, but there's a momentum when a collective group does that together. Because when I wait silently by myself, I do it on my time frame. I do it, uh, and I can interpret in many different ways as well, all everywhere I want to go. But in community, I think there's something special about physical engagement with people, smells, <laughs> Uh, even, um, even reading people and like people being bored or someone sleeping. Or, you know, I can imagine all that happening in that scene that tells you something. And God speaks, I think, through community as well when we are in proximity to one another. So do not, um, just to close this part, do not take for granted proximity. When we say, let's just Zoom call or, you know, let's just do a Skype call. I get, I get it. Because it gets to the aims faster. Why waste time driving somewhere and getting together and meeting in person? Let's just virtually do this. Because what really matters is the words. right? What matters is the words of exchange so that we can actually come up with a strategy to move forward. But presence and proximity is important. So the Holy Spirit is an interesting thing. He says, Jesus says to them as he's leaving, he says, listen, I'm not going to leave you alone And this counselor, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I I mentioned this before. And so, I've always thought of the Holy Spirit as a, I grew up in a very charismatic church. Um, Charismatic and a lot of tongues, a lot of prayers, like just all over my house, you know, it's all around me. (laughs) So I grew up in that, and I had seasons reactionary against it and all that kind of stuff. I've I've grown to appreciate my upbringing a lot, actually, um, in what it has done to me unconsciously, which is great. And then um, in that, I always thought of the Holy Spirit as something that touches my emotions. I've never actually thought the Holy Spirit as something that touches my mind. You know, I thought the teaching, the Bible does the mind stuff, the Holy Spirit does the feel-good tummy stuff, you know, that makes me cry, you know, when I'm worshiping. That's Holy Spirit stuff, right? But actually, the description of Jesus is the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. This is one, My pastor actually mentioned this to me, and it's kind of alarmed me. I'm like, I never saw the Holy Spirit as a teacher, you know, I never saw him in that role. It seems too sterile. It, it seems too boring, you know. Teachers, boring, right? I mean, like, and so we have this, and as I mentioned, the way he teaches is through memory, is through recollection of things. So I want to also mention that as you are, uh, and I, I guess I said in this last thing, but let me just reiterate it because I think it's important. As you step into this unknown world where things are not linear and things are cyclical and things are not uh, where you don't see like a, a cause coming to and, and ends in the, in the way that is, is predictable. When you come into this world and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, do not take for granted as well when, when certain things come to your mind that reminds you of a moment that you had that had like some revelation or some, someone spoke a word or whatnot or you remember a, a difficult moment in time. Those are not like just... Um, uh, you know, a human thing. It's not just 
something that is just my memory. It's actually a use of the Holy Spirit um, to speak to you, right? And so as one thing, the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you within the confines of the life of the, the lived life of Jesus, number one. Number two, the Holy Spirit is going to use the memory, also the things there, but particularly, too, is going to remind you of certain passages of Jesus' life that has come up to you. So the, the, if the disciples are there and he says, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you and remind you all the things I have commanded, because they don't have a live book, because they don't have, like, their phone with all the scriptures and different translations with them at that time, they have to rely on an oral tradition. They have to rely upon something that is based on memory, you know, and, and story and certain essence of it. And, and the way we are reminded of the commands of Jesus might be verses, but for them, I don't think it's verses as much, like precise like that. I think reminding is of like messages, like the parable meant this, you know. And so it's important if, especially as you as all leaders, is that you have to, be more and more, and I'm going to get to this further, you have to be very, very versatile with the scriptures in your leading. If discernment is going to be, which is my main point today in this session, discernment is the way in which you're going to function in here, and you're not given these tool, the, 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 these handouts where ask these questions, and you know, or here's the four spiritual laws that you're going to use to evangelize, or here's a model, here's a best practice to use in this unknown world. We can't use that stuff there. So we have to use discernment when we're in this world. So if you're going to be discerning, again, it's not just staying empty in here. It's immersing yourself and soaking yourself with enough to know that this passage or this, uh, what Jesus said here, and all the whole scriptures really, you will have like your Cole's notes in your mind of what is meaningful to that. You all, I think every believer needs to, especially leaders, need to embody this ability to intuitively engage. Like when I preach, there's certain messages I will preach that are brand spanking new, really tough, and I'll usually manuscript that, manuscript that stuff, right? And it's like I'm like literally reading. And some you'll see me sometimes reading today because it's complicated for me to say, so I need to kind of say it very clearly and succinctly. But then usually when I digest a point and it's become a point that like I've tried to live it out to and I've, I've explained it a few times or whatnot, I need, people need to see it coming out in a natural way for one. And it helps me to know, okay, I got that under my belt a little bit because that's where the Holy Spirit is going to use us in that to do missions as we go on over here. And so the way I would uh, give this example, um, and, and I, I'm just repeating this part, but like Jesus leaving is a concrete example of following Jesus and whatnot. But as you, if you want to write these things down, you can. But as we figure out discernment in this new path, and I'm always going to, let's just for, from now, like I'm going to use this line as this, this description of modernity being a linear path, cause and effect. If you do this, it will lead to that. When you function in that and suddenly you go into this unknown world which the disciples were going to, they didn't have a concrete Jesus example to follow. It's no longer linear. It's not... And they have to figure out how to function in this world. And I use discernment as it. One, um, one author and, and clergyman, his name is Samuel Wells, he says this interesting thing. He, he refers to it as improvisation. And he says that in this world of modernity, when it kind of just worked, Billy Graham just worked. You know, I mean, like he just, 
He said it. Everyone was like, yes, that's true. I believe it. You know, man, Billy Graham now, if he was in this society, maybe he would have a different approach, I would imagine. Because it's just not as simple. Before modernity, that's it. Just follow this and this. It was relevant. It was cutting edge and cool. And it was new. You had DC Talk and Michael W. Smith and all these cool people, contemporary Christian music coming on. It felt like that was it. Just follow the Billy Graham model and we're good. But let me tell you, that worked for modernity. That worked in a baby boomer kind of era, right, where that was the predominant way in which to function. That was linear, cause and effect. You give the call, they receive. And yes, we need to still do that, of course. But when you step into this new world and you're trying to work in a pluralistic society where you have no history, uh, where you have no Christendom to rely upon, and you are not having a place of esteem in society, actually it's below esteem, it's, you know, we're degraded in a lot of societies seen as jokes in a way. When you're not, you, you do not have an elevated um, position in society, you can't function the same way perhaps as, as Billy Graham did. Um, you have to function a little bit differently in this new era. And so Samuel Wells says it's kind of like improvisation. And, and it, he calls it the drama, the drama of, of, of working out faith. And says there's different ways. If any of you guys have done theater before, you will see that there's, there's a way of theater where you are given a script. And if you're given a script, it's kind of like this era over here where you know what's coming up. You know what the other person is going to say, you know, and then you can respond based on the script. And, and it's predictable. It's linear. It's, it's, it's how it's going to go. But he says improvisation, you know, uh, what's that? Uh, whose line is it anyways? You know that, that, that show? Or like that improvisation in that world there's no script there's a concept perhaps there's a vague kind of parameters of what the game is going to be um if you if i love watching people who are um impro improving if it's whether it's a podcast or whatnot because you don't know what's going to come next and it's kind of like jazz music right jazz actually you have to be very disciplined to play jazz and i'm no musician that can know all these things but it's different classical music you know your role you know your position your expertise you know how to function in that but then improvisation or jazz is like you're riffing off of one another someone plays a little bit and it's focused on the piano and everyone's just like kind of playing along and then it's your turn and you go with the melody you know you know somewhat of uh the main chords you're going on, but you create your own melody in the way it is, right? So improvisation is a little bit like that. And I, I love how he coins this and says, he says, one problem arises, sorry, I don't have it up here, but this is a book called Improvisation by Samuel Wells. He says, one problem arises from the expectation that the script of a drama provides a comprehensive version of life in which all eventualities and questions meet their appropriate forms of engagement and resolution. Let me just say it one more time because it's a little wordy. It says, it's, it's in which all eventualities and questions meet their appropriate forms of engagement and resolution. So in a, in a script, there is a happy ending. It's, it's nicely put together. You can anticipate a resolution in it, and you know it's coming, Right? If performance of a script is regarded as the pragmatic form of discipleship, a great deal of disappointment or double-think is likely to result. It cannot simply be a matter of performing the same story in new circumstances. The story must take some allowances for the new circumstance. 
I think that's huge. When you, and you can play with this, because today I'm just giving you these broad things. You can take this, like, very far, actually, um, if, if, if you want. And this is not in this slide right here. I'm just going to go ahead a little bit to another slide here. This is another quote. And I'm sorry if these are wordy things, but um, it's very fascinating. So uh, Alan Roxborough is a missiologist. He's actually a Toronto-Canadian uh, uh, missiologist who's um, done a lot. And if you've been in missional literature a lot, he's like one of the foremost people in Canada to do these things. So Alan Roxborough states that continuous change, again, this is kind of like the modernity thing, continuous change develops out of what has gone before and therefore can be expected, anticipated, and managed. It's changed within a familiar paradigm. Discontinuous change is disruptive and unanticipated. It creates situations that challenge our assumptions, an unpredictable environment where new skills are needed. So dynamic, this is my words, so dynamic that a static set of skills will prove insufficient to stay in stride. So it's another way of talking about this improvisation. And so in order to function in this new kind of world, we need this Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to, and lean on it heavily, the Holy Spirit's guidance and discernment to engage in that. My, my mentor, uh, Rick Tobias from uh, Yangshi Mission, he's a former CEO there, he's, and he's worked a lot with street-involved youth and all sorts of um, um, marginalized populations. And the one thing he says to me is that, Jesse, I think that our versions of evangelism, whether it's evangelism explosion or four spiritual laws or this method or that is literally just forms of best practices that have been created, that have worked in certain circumstances in the past that do not, this is my, always my uncomfort with certain models, that just don't work sometimes in these contexts because they can see it, like they can see it and predict it and watch it as it's playing out. So he says actually to him, evangelism is discernment. <laughs> He just says that. He's like, evangelism is discernment. Evangelism is knowing when to speak, knowing when not to speak, at the right time, when to emphasize, when to de-emphasize, when to come into it. And it's much harder to discern than it is to have a script in which you are capturing all the points necessary. I don't see Jesus functioning in this checklist of ways in which to satisfy. He doesn't function like that. I find myself quite distraught every time he says to someone, okay, just sin no more and go. I'm like, wait, hey, where's the, <laughs> I'm like, where's the, where's the, where's the system there? Like, where, where is it? it? It leaves me like with no concrete model of what to do. It's, it's, it, it, it's like different ways in which people have received salvation in his ministry um, as he goes on. And so I find that discernment is a, is a very important part of us engaging. So let's keep going because I want to keep on hitting it. Um, more and more. So discernment is that. So that's, just give a, a picture here, and it's an insufficient one, but just alluding to the fact that the Spirit is leading us to what it is to engage in improv and to do that. And so, before I get to Pentecost in Athens, let me just come here for a moment. I'm pivoting right now. I'm trying to listen to the Spirit trying to live out what I'm preaching over here. There is a great text that I think we should go straight to. 
Okay. So I saw this analogy one time. Um, because improv and jazz takes a lot of discipline. Like, it takes a lot of discipline. And it takes a lot of, like, watching and listening and hearing tone. Like, so if you are not, if your EQ is low, it's hard to do improv, right? If you, if you don't have a high emotional intelligence and you can't read people well and you see people as just all, like, generic faces, then it's hard to actually improv. But for you to improv, you need to read people. And in the, the Christian dimension of this, you have to see this uh, broader Christian narrative and gospel somehow there too, right? So you have the person in front of you that you're engaging with or a circumstance you're engaging with, and you don't have a prescript plan there. And then you have the gospel over here, and you have all the word of God and listening to the Holy Spirit reminding you of things. You have a lot of things to consider in that moment. And the discipline to get there, you don't just show up in improv and improv and it just happens. I believe there's lots of grace where God does that, definitely so. But here's a great analogy. So it's, a, it's, it's this, Charles Spurgeon uses this line. He says this. He says, Charles Spurgeon was talking about this dilemma between being spirit-led and be, having some structure or having some discipline. I, I got awakened by this before I read this. Like spiritual formation for me, I'm like, why? I just, I want to go where the wind takes me. I don't want to have these hardcore spiritual disciplines where I wake up in the morning. It seems so cold and ritualistic for me to do that. I believe that God is just going to wake me up and I'm just going to feel this motivation and purity and authenticity to listen to God, and I'm going to do that in the morning, and I'm going to ignore all my children that are around me, and it's just going to happen, you know, like, and then I'm not going to carve it out. No, I need to just go where the wind takes me, right, um, because that's true following of the Spirit. But then spiritual disciplines, and what I mean by spiritual disciplines, those are like a meditation, you know, like reading scripture regularly, digesting that, memorizing scripture, contemplative prayer, all these different things, which is a whole other thing that you can get into on your own by Richard Foster or Dave Dallas Willard, which I already heard those two names here in this church. So you're aware of that. But those routines and traditional, like, um, things that you can develop in that creates the discipline necessary so that when you are actually on stage and you have to engage and improv, you will have a tool belt full of these spiritual disciplines and actually an anchoring and a backdrop that is robust, right? So you're not winging your improv. It is grounded. It is unshakable. And it feels more sound than just going off the cuff, all right? And it's an intangible, perhaps, feel, but it is sound and robust. So he says this in, in this dilemma between spirit-led and stay empty in your head versus discipline. He says this. We cannot rule the winds nor create them. A whole parliament of philosophers could not cause a cap full of wind to blow. The sailor knows that he can neither stop the tempest nor raise it. What then? Does he sit still? By no means. He has all kinds of sails of different cuts and forms to enable him to use every ounce of wind that comes. And he knows how to reef or furl them in case the tempest becomes too strong for his bark. 
Though he cannot control the movement of the wind, he can use what it pleases God to send. The miller cannot divert that great stream of water out of its channel, but he knows how to utilize it. He makes it turn his mill wheel. Though he cannot resist the law of gravitation, we can't control that, for there seems to be almost omnipotent force in it, yet he uses that law and yokes it to his chariot. Thus, though we cannot command that mighty influence which streams from the omnipotent spirit of God, though we cannot turn it which way we will, for the wind bloweth where it listeth, we yet we can make use of it, and in our, in our inability to save men, we turn to God and lay hold of his power. Good, right? Like that's a good way for us to, to comprehend that sailing and knowing how to catch a wind. I'm always confused when I did the, you know, the surfboard thing, wind sailing thing. I'm like, how is someone, when the wind is going against the shore, how are they catching it, you know, to go towards the shore? I mean, I, don't, I never understood that. So anytime I went on them, I would just... <laughs> Come back. Because um, I don't understand how um, that can work. And the, without the spirit, we can, we can do nothing. You know, we're, sh- we're just basically ships without the wind. And that's true. But that doesn't mean, like just it says over here, it doesn't mean that we just sit still. We have to know how to use it. And, and as I mentioned to you, and I don't have to reiterate, but when my high school days... There was a dependent, and that's a season of it. But once maturity occurs, and I begin to just know stuff, and I begin to just have a little bit more skills, what does that mean? Do I just throw away the skills so that I can remain naive and innocent? What do I do with all the knowledge I've gained and all the experience acquired as as I mature into adulthood? So we cannot determine the wind's movements. That's key. We can't determine it. I can never replicate, by the way, that stuff in high school where we have thousands of people and it was amazing, I can never replicate it. I tried. I tried to, I tried, actually, when I was in Boston University uh, in, in the church planning, I tried to use similar tactics and best practices from my high school days in there. It just didn't work in this new era, in this new context. <clears throat> so we can't change the river's current But what we can do is grow in our understanding of how to use its force. We can strengthen the vessel in which we navigate through the waters. A spirit-led life is not a passive one. We're not supposed to simply wait, twiddle our fingers, and for the wind to carry us to our next destination. And so it's very important that see that that's the distinction I had trouble with in my spiritual life is that once I actually had capabilities... I simply scrapped the scale, uh, sales. I thought this was a waste of time. Um, let me just buy an engine and be a motorboat. You know what I mean? Like, I just, why? Uh, I know what to do now. Like, I've done it many times. I've preached messages before or whatnot. Let me just lean on best practices and just scrap the sales. Whatever wind is out there, thank you very much, Concrete Jungle Toronto. It doesn't matter what weather. It doesn't matter what not. I can figure it out on my own, thank you very much. I scrap on an engine, put it on my boat, and says, really, it doesn't matter, Holy Spirit, where you're leading, where you're blowing, I'm just going to go, because I need to get to my destination, you know? I gotta pick up my kids at 3.30 from school. Like, it's, it's, I have to get there, and I have to progress in a certain direction. And so I think it's important for us as we mature that we need to actually know 
that's things like boring stuff. Like the, it's the boring stuff, like the spiritual disciplines. It's the boring stuff, like listening and, and, and meditating on Scripture. All of that stuff that you do in private or collectively together is a setup for you to have all these tools in your tool belt that when you engage in the real world and you're trying to work with this ever-changing world, constantly fast-changing, I don't know what TikTok is, I, I'm still in Facebook, Instagram. Like, I don't know what has shifted and changed in this new landscape of social media. I don't know what to do in this world. So we need to simply lean on the spirit and rely upon the, the, the substance that we had um, before there. I'm going to stop here for a moment. just going to ask us here if there's any thoughts or questions that kind of arise or even disagreements or thoughts that you want to present or challenge of what I'm saying uh, before I go a little bit more from Pentecost to Athens. Is there thoughts here? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Do you mind standing and continuing talking? So I was got a recommendation. Oh, that's what you were saying. I, I thought you were. Referencing that I should use the mic. I have a mic. Got it. <laughs> I'm like, I thought this turned off or something. Do you need me to repeat the first thing I said? Yeah, just repeat it. It's really significant because okay. I'm going to relate back to it. Sorry. Um, that's okay. So uh, I was talking about the, the fact of childlike faith and um, him speaking back to we can't go back to our childhood days or high school and repeat that and have that same innocence. But yet as a parent or... Um, being engaged with little children, as it says in Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, unless, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes us in our adulthood, our wisdom, all of our years of schooling, whatever it is, we can get on this motorboat and be running forward towards those goals and you have your child or someone else's child stop you dead in your tracks and you come to terms with like, okay, where am I going? What's, what's the real goal? What's the real focus? What's, mm -hmm. should I be moving in the spirit or staying to my structure? You know, mom has this to do, we have this to do, we have this to do and moving forward and running past what God actually wants us to see, um, which reminded me of how in the beginning you were talking about relationships, and if our goal and our aim is to be more like Jesus, he was built so much on relationships and not always on structure, being able to stop, see someone come through the roof, and no, this person needs healing right now. Um, where I had a mentor in my life early on in my Christian walk that 
she spoke to me and stopped in the midst of her having her own three children and all of that. She stopped, saw me as a new Christian and purposely sought out building that relationship with me. And she said the two points were the best part of evangelism that she has learned over the years is one, meeting people where they're at. So she knew I was 28. I didn't know scripture. I was lost in darkness. And she met my felt needs. She listened to me and was like, okay, Melanie doesn't need me to, scroll, to, to throw X, Y, and Z scripture at her. She literally can't pay her bill and doesn't have someone to pick up her son after school. Mm. Why don't I talk to her and meet her where she's at in regards to those needs? And I believe that's the big part of Jesus' heart, yeah. where yeah. are we able to stop in our days and, yeah, see that person on the side of the road, <laughs> see whatever it is that you, you're right beside me. Or are we running forward and I don't even see you sitting beside me crying? Yeah, absolutely. Discernment. That was yeah. Great. Is it you? No, no, no. You're just passing around the mic. Okay, guys. I just want to say something about this. This is very important. Is that, okay, so say you had childlike faith, you've matured, now you're mature now, whatever that means, and then we're now mature and we have all these skills and all this knowledge. And then you said that very interesting point in that when a new believer comes on the scene, and um, you see suddenly their passion, and you're watching them like, oh my goodness, that's their first love. I gotta get back to my first love, you know? Like, um, they, they seem so, like they're evangelizing to everyone, and we're just envious, like, oh my gosh, I'm so far from that now. And you look at that, it's great, actually. Number one, it doesn't mean you be that, in that you have to fake to come to that place. But there's a different place you're in now. There's an appreciation. It's a reminder. And it's also, I got to say, the best evangelists are new believers. Like, way better than any. If you've been a believer for, like, if you're gifted in evangelism, one thing. But the rest of us, uh, <laughs> after it's been a few years, man, you know, support them. And do as much evangelism as you can personally, of course. But you watch people who are just saved. They're evangelists. You have to cultivate that gift. It's actually, an, and, and let, it, let it affect you again in a certain way. Um, and just like children. So actually, whether it's new believers and they look naive and they seem like they're not biblically sound or whatnot, they're just sound, or if there's children, you know, spouting out different things, it's right. You, there's a, there, that's part of actually having that stable maturity, not responding to that with like, oh, that's just a little kid or like whatever. It's actually the more mature you are, the more the, the mentors I have that are older and have come, they seem to lean in to like very insignificant small little points that don't seem, you know, it's people in my phase who just need to use all these fancy words or whatever. The, the people who are actually mature are the ones who just like say something very simple because they're coming back a little bit to a childlike understanding, getting to the core of it, and, and, and a child's intuition is actually quite important. So I would, I would agree with that, definitely. Any other thoughts before I kind of move forward? Just want to hear a highlight if, just to, or if it's a point that you want to elaborate on or just a question. Okay, so I'm going to keep on moving just for time's sake. Uh, so we have a lot. Keep going. So this is an interesting, um, so Pentecost happens. There's a lot that happens uh, in, in Acts. But here's the interesting thing. So as we know, this is a Jewish religion. And the first Christians, just all Jews. So that's everyone in the beginning. And um, they're not thinking they're 
something different. They are a continuation of Judaism, right? So the Christian faith, continuation of Judaism, and they are Jews, that's how they are. But then they have this mandate. And this is the thing that is the hardest because it's not only living without Jesus as being difficult, they have a task to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. It means that every nation. So they have to go through another kind of conflicting uh, and, and tense moment where they have to say, how are we going to translate this Jewish religion to the rest of the world? And it's in that moment, in the first few chapters of Acts, where they are in Jerusalem and probably hitting more of the Jews, and, and actually the way they preach shows it, right? Whether it's Peter and John uh, who just heals the beggar, it says they preach. And how do they preach? It's actually from, from then to, all the way to Stephen, Stephen who gets martyred later on. In all those stories, when, the way they preach, if you look at it, it relies heavily on assuming that the people that they're talking to understands the Jewish narrative. So from Acts, uh, the, the first all the way to Stephen, they're referring to the Jewish narrative and saying, you know, Moses, you know, you know, David, you know, like, and this is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of this and whatnot. They're trying to lead it. And they always, as they preach in Acts, they're, they're having, whether it's um, in Acts 3, whether it's uh, Peter and John heals the lame beggar, uh, whether it's the stoning of Stephen, all the way to seven, you get this picture that they're speaking to their own tribe. And I would probably, too, in the start, I'm not going to go and jump into the deep end and try to go to someone of a totally different culture when I'm starting. But that is a cultural thing that's happening there that they are speaking to. And then they start to wrestle with a lot of these um, traditions of the Jewish religions. They start to wrestle with it significantly because now Gentiles start coming on the plane. So you have um, Philip in Samaria. So before that, the stoning of Stephen, number one, Stephen and Philip, guess what? They're deacons, right? That's another thing. Um, they, the, the elders, uh, the apostles said, we got to do the preaching of the word, and we're going to set aside deacons. And these deacons were Hellenistic uh, Jews. They were people who kind of like are second gen. Uh, if you know, like in, cult, in ethnic churches, there's like a second generation that comes out. So uh, immigrant families come, and then the second generation know the Canadian culture. It's intuitive to them. So this is like the deacons were like, they're the ones who are cultural translators, right? They know the Jewish religion. They know the Jewish past, but they're Hellenistic Jews in that they are the ones who know how to function in a Hellenistic society, in a Greek culture. And so they're doing that, they're functioning in that, and they're the deacons, and they're the ones who are serving the food, apparently, right? And guess what? Out of those two, even though the, the, the apostles are the ones who said that they're the ones who are going to proclaim the gospel, and you guys do the food stuff, guess who starts, who gets martyred first? It's Stephen, proclaiming the gospel. Philip, going to Samaria, revival breaking out in Samaria after that. And then what? Philip going down the desert road, meeting an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch, right? And this is the Gentile kind of interaction. And so they're bumping up against these Gentiles. And let me tell you, it starts getting heated because the Jews, it's Jewish. It's a Jewish religion. And then they start to meet with people until you get to, particularly it's Peter. Peter, the leader. He should know what's going on, right? Like, Peter... He should know. He's been with Jesus for a while. <laughs> but then he encounters a guy named Cornelius. And so, long story short, you have Peter who gets into this trance and he thinks, 
And God says, you can eat all these things or whatnot. There's this picture he gave. He doesn't fully understand it. And as he's contemplating this weird trance dream in there, suddenly someone comes and says, you know, our master Cornelius wants to meet with you. And Peter would usually say, no, I'm not going to meet with Cornelius. He's a Gentile. Like, I mean, I don't think I should because, you know, we don't go into Gentiles' homes, right? But then because of this trance, because the Holy Spirit was speaking to him, I would say, because I believe in that moment God is trying to, and by the way, God will give you dreams or thoughts that confuse you and make you wonder, and it's incomplete. Like, this whole sheet with the animals, in it, it's an incomplete thought. He has not resolved yet, and then something comes, and so what does he do? Just like Samuel Wells says, he improvs. He says, okay, let's go into a Gentile home and let me come with you. He goes into this Gentile home. He's in Cornelius' house. And if you read this passage, you will look at how surprised he is, okay? Because as he's proclaiming the gospel, he's like, I guess I'm here. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. I don't. And he knows it's supposed to be for the all nations, but it looks so uncomfortable. He's proclaiming the gospel. As he's proclaiming the gospel to Cornelius and his family's home, suddenly the Holy Spirit falls upon them. That's like a drop. Like, he did not know what to do when the Holy Spirit fell on them. And so he literally says, well, I guess if the Holy Spirit is on you, I guess we should baptize you. <laughs> and it's like, it's not even in his, I would argue when I read this passage, it's not even in his mind that's like, I'm going to come there, they're going to all get baptized, and we're going to start the revolution in the Gentile world. No. He's coming in there shocked. I'm not supposed to be here. Okay, I'm going to put in the gospel. And then it happens. The Holy Spirit falls on them. Okay, let's get baptized. And you know why I know how unsure and, and how he walked with trepidation into there? You know why? It's because there's a whole big council meeting that happened in Acts 15 later. Right? So we're here in Acts 10. The disciples, let me tell you, they're stumbling through Acts. They have no idea how to be a church yet. You know, I, I always, people often say, like, oh, let's be like the Acts 2 church or whatever. Yes, if you want to be a chaotic church, we're <laughs> figuring out, which I think is good, too. But, like, they're not, every decision they make, by the way, in, the, in Acts doesn't mean it's, like, what we have to do, in a way. Because, like, they're figuring out as they go. They're trying to know how to come out of their own culture and, 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 and make it open to people of not their culture. Which, by the way, is what we have to do, Right? is what, what our task is, especially now in a very pluralistic society. We cannot lean upon the Jewish narrative or the Christian narrative as we walk into there. We can't be like Peter and John and say, you know Moses, you know Jesus, you know. We're in a, my friend calls it, a pre-Christian phase. People say we're in post-Christendom. We've passed post-Christendom, and now we are now pre-Christendom. I don't want Christendom again. But, like, we are now pre-Christian. People are so far removed, they have hints of watching, you know, the news and, like, some stereotypes about Christianity. That's all they, they don't have many people live the experience in the church anymore. Post-Christendom is, like, a, a place where people have some experience and, there's, and they've left the church and whatnot, and we're in that zone. We're now, like, pre-Christendom, Christendom, where we, people don't have any basis of that. So we can't lean on that like John and Peter did. But Peter goes, and he communicates the gospel. He does that so, and people get saved, and they're baptized, right? So let's keep on going. So what ends up happening? Council of Jerusalem. And the reason why I know Peter was all very confused is that Peter was, they say Peter is for the Jews and Paul is for the Gentiles. But guess what? Peter preached to the Gentiles, and he figured it out. And because of that, they had to come back because they scattered, right? After Stephen got stoned 
everyone had to leave Jerusalem. And I think it's interesting that, like, it takes sometimes a rattling of the church to get us to go into these unfamiliar. Because if we had the choice, these unfamiliar territories, if we had the choice, we would stay and we would only reach the people who work with this cause and effect linear patterns. Like, and if the only people you're reaching as a church are people who fall in line with the linear path, then that's easy, right? But sometimes, and that's why I think sometimes stuff happens at church and sometimes death or like tragic things happen uh, in the church life, which we don't experience sometimes enough when it comes to like the way in which we protect ourselves. But when that happens, it was good because the disciples went out, Philip went that way, Peter went that way, everyone went different places. And as they were there, they had to figure out how to function. And you will grow most when you're in unfamiliar environments and figuring that out. So now they're in Council of Jerusalem. They say, okay, Jewish laws, circumcision, they're not the most seeker friendly service. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> Who wants to be saved and follow Jesus? Let's come to the back room. Um, <laughs> we got to make sure you're really, you know, we got to make sure you're really a part of this family. Let's snip, snip, and let's make this happen. Now you're a part of, you know, the kingdom of God. And, by the way, all these kosher laws as well, right? So they're debating that and saying, okay, if this is going to make traction, the Gentile world, I don't know, Jesus didn't talk about this so explicitly, right? And so they're figuring it out in Council of Jerusalem. And they're debating. It's a real debate. We can't assume everyone. There's the Judaizers here, and there's the people like Paul who are championing. And Paul says something very significant. He says, how can we put on the backs uh, of these new Gentiles a burden that we could not even carry ourselves, right? And so that was, I think, the clincher of that. So in the end, they compromised, actually. They resolved at the end, and they said, okay, let's... Okay, you don't have to do the circumcision thing anymore. Uh, kosher laws, let's be a little bit more flexible with that. Kind of ends, and I'm paraphrasing. But let's, let's stick with the poor, though. Let's make sure we serve the poor, uh, which is why I do what I do. Um, so he says that, and he says, okay, let's go for it. And then they go off and, and, and try to express it with many more conflicts after that, Acts 15. You know, whether if you read Galatians, Galatians is Paul's anger because he's like, come on, guys, like, we decided on this stuff, and now Judaizers is coming because they cannot help it. After Acts 15, they're continuously putting a burden on the Gentiles that they cannot carry themselves. They keep on trying to infuse. And, and it might not have been like, they, it was actually circumcision, by the way. Um, it, it was stuff like that. That was really what they said, no, you got to get circumcised. You know why? Guess what? If you're a chosen generation, a chosen people, sorry. If you're a chosen people, and you've been... You've been, um, you've been constantly persecuted, um, and you have this small identity in the world, and everyone's against you, and suddenly you're like, you got to share this to all those people who are against you, right? i got to say, if you're a minority, and suddenly in, in that sense, and then you have to give to the people who were trying to persecute you before, that's hard, right? And when you're a chosen generation, you have pride. You're full-on ethnocentric. You're just, you have... I, we are the people, and then suddenly I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to you, and you don't have to do the circumcision stuff, like the hard stuff. It's extremely difficult to do that, too. We're giving you this free gift, and you get our inheritance. You know, that's why it's so hard. In Galatians, Paul says, you know, when talking about the, the Gentiles, he says, this is, how, this is how amazing our God is. He says it in this way, but as a Jew, it would probably be very difficult. He says, look, you were once slaves, 
out in the field working out. And then I called you in and I said, you can sit at the table and eat with us and I'm going to call you child. You're now a child of God. You're my child. You're no longer a slave. You're a child. And then suddenly he says, you're not only a child. Because you're my child, you get my inheritance. Which means you're jipping every other one of your kids of their inheritance to parcel out for them, right? If we think of it like uh, an end cap to the inheritance. And then God is saying that. And so on the Gentile side, it's like, great, <laughs> wonderful. I get to be on air. But on the Jew side, it's like, no, that's we were the ones who held on for so long, right? And so there's that's what happened. And then Timothy, this is one of, on a side, Timothy, after Paul leaves the council of Jerusalem, he goes to Timothy. Timothy is not circumcised, and Timothy is a, he is both Greek and he's both Jewish. So he's the bicultural person. And, he's the, and then Paul says, right after he argued, no need for circumcision, he goes, Timothy, you got to get circumcised. Bro, buddy. <laughs> he actually says later, he goes, Timothy, you got to get circumcised, right? So he tells Timothy, and Timothy gets circumcised. And i got to say, there's certain people, um, and you might be it, like whether it's a cultural church or whatnot or how you engage, sometimes you got to take one for the team um, and be like a Timothy. And, and it's, it's appropriate. You have to um, kind of... Uh, abide by the rules of the old tradition in order to be a better witness to both parties. And that's just uh, for us to know. And finally, we, we arrive at where I'm going to talk about, um, just to end our time here in the last uh, 10 minutes, is Athens. So Paul gets to Athens. And Athens is a fascinating place when we get to 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 17. And I'll close in this part. Um, you can, like, read it on your own, but I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. Pa uh, Paul is waiting there for other disciples. He's in Athens, and because he's agitated at seeing all these idols around him, he's like, why don't I just preach here? Why don't I do something here? So I think he, of course, he has probably an inclination to preach wherever he's going to, but because he's waiting, he sees all these idols, he gets disturbed by these idols, right? And he, Athens is a place of philosophers. Athens is so far from where John and Peter were speaking to that beggar, or Stephen to the Sanhedrin. Like, in that moment there, it's such a different context. You're in Athens, you're seeing all these gods, which represents the plurality of beliefs. It, it represents um, a, a place so far removed from the Jewish culture. And Paul, in this unknown world where he has to improvise here, what does he do? Just like improvisation, he takes a prop. He uses a prop. He sees all these gods, and one of them is an unknown god. You know, if you do improv, you, um, you find something intriguing or, or some kind of reaction from the crowd. And then, you know, com good comedians, they'll interact with the crowd like, you know, Russell Peters or whatnot. He'll start making fun of that person or whatnot because it's just he found the way in, right? And so Paul comes and he sees this unknown god, it says, and he uses that as the way to wedge himself into a relevant conversation in that context. Traditionally, you would normally go into that place if you take the Old Testament route and say, you're all sinners, you have all these idols, you need to just burn them. And you would come hard at idols. You would not think at all to legitimize an idol. And there's debate whether that's legitimizing idol or not. But he sees that unknown God, okay, I'm just gonna use this, okay. This is the unknown God out of all of them, and he points out to them and says, let me tell you about this unknown God. 
Because the unknown God represents the thing in the culture or the thing in the context in which it was the question of the culture, right? The unknown God represents the question. This is what they don't know. And our culture tends to think they know everything, right? But they, this is one thing they don't know. This is this, the critical question. And when you are trying to navigate from a very controlled environment into an uncontrolled, everything goes kind of environment, you have to find the crucial question. And that crucial question doesn't use, is not usually the questions we use here in this Billy Graham phase. That question over here, um, in a world that doesn't see themselves deprived, for example, um, and, and, and you have to find, like, your sin, using the word sin even in our culture is, like, really taboo, right? So you, you have to know what is going to work in this context. And it doesn't mean to relativize. It, like, Paul doesn't do that in this text. But he looks at that and he says, this is my way in. I know they don't know what this is. And so he uses it. So there's a few things he does. Let me just read it because it's, it's cool how he does it. In verse 22, I don't have it up here. Acts 17, 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting uh, of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Okay, so he validates them. He actually says, you're very religious. So he's saying a positive thing. You're very religious. It says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. You don't know what this unknown God is, so let me tell you what it is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. As he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Notice he doesn't refer to the Jewish narrative. He's not starting with Adam. He's not starting with the law. He's not starting with Moses. He's beginning with this cosmic, ambiguous God who made the world and everything in it. First of all, he is also making distinction. Because when, when he says he's the God who made the world. Now, gods in that time are not all creator gods, right? If you have a plurality of, you know, in Hinduism, not everyone... Not everyone's a creator God. Actually, most of them are not creator God. They're just a form of a God who does a function, right? So he does, in the midst of talking about God, he gives a specificity, saying it's a creator God. That's number one. Creator God, that's cool to know. And he's Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples. So it says, verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit it, the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Note that. He doesn't reference scripture. <laughs> he referenced their poets. <laughs> That's fascinating, I think. And so he says, in your own words, we are his offspring, right? He's trying to find a way, and he's actually using. So when, when people say, like, you know, don't refer to, you know, the worldly things. That, there's redeemable qualities of the world where we can see God in. We can see the kingdom of God in it. And, you know, there's no need to be insecure and say, oh, that's not a Christian. No. There's certain things that we can redeem and say that's a godly thing. That's, that is there. And he even, to the point, uses that in his legitimization 
of a certain text that he wanted to say. He wanted to say, we are his offsprings. But instead of him saying, we are his offspring, he says, you guys said yourself, we are his offspring. And so let me continue. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offsprings, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Here's the rebuke. Okay? He's starting to, if we think we're living stuff and we are God's offsprings, therefore, if we are living, there's no way that God is stone, right? There's no way he's made of gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skills. He's looking at all these, all made by human design. If we're his offspring, therefore, in this logical pattern, there's no way that he is of that. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. He says, maybe before that could have flawed, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And let me tell you why. He hasn't, he hasn't said the word Jesus yet. <laughs> in this whole time, he just talked about God, heaven. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Again, no Jesus yet. A man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He's like, if I'm a philosopher there, I'm like, who are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like, I would be like, he's building this anticipation. He wants them, he's indicated the problem. He's hinting at a solution. He's even, he hasn't named it, but it's like the function of that solution, of the person who's going to be that. And then he says, he has given them proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And at that point, the hint, like, maybe, maybe not, like, people have gotten the picture. Perhaps, maybe they have heard of Jesus by here now. Who knows how many people and philosophers are hearing about this, and maybe someone here knows that they did. I'm not sure. But when he says raised from the dead, that's significant. That is distinct. That is incredibly particular rather than just creator God. He's saying a particularity, saying that he's raised from the dead, which, by the way, the emphasis on resurrection rather than cross is interesting here. Why is it interesting? Because these are a bunch of dead rocks, right? That's how I would read it. These are lifeless, dead rocks. And if you want to, in that moment, contrast what that culture is valuing to say you're missing on something. If there's something unknown about all these rocks that you got over here, I got a resurrected God. He's not only a living God. He goes deeper. It's like, this is the resurrected God. When they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left, Paul left the council. And some people became followers of Paul at that time. So I think that's fascinating to me how he constructed that mini-sermon or whatnot, of how he improvised in that moment, showed me a discerning of the Spirit. First of all, it started with this conviction that something is wrong with this culture or something is wrong. By, it, it says it distressed him. So I think, first of all, don't come into a context that's unknown or this new world or this how, don't come in there thinking, i got to solve this problem or whatnot. Hopefully, you're not thinking just solution, but you feel a distress, right, a discontent with what is happening. And that's what stimulated that. And as he went in there, he saw probably a core thing about this question, which had to do with the lifelessness. He must have sensed, perhaps, and maybe I'm over-dramatizing his thoughts, but he must have sensed a dissatisfaction with idol worship, right? 
And if there is things in our culture, which I would say it's so easy to find <laughs> in our culture, the things that they worship as a culture, or we, because we're a part of the culture too, the things that we worship, it's so simple to find things that are lifeless idols to them that do not quench their thirst. Millions of things. Now, the key thing that's going to be informed based on your core spiritual disciplines that you've instilled in there, a sensitivity to the spirit and all that, the thing that you can laser focus on, the best preachers I know out there who can speak, they speak to the critical, very fine-tuned question. I hate it when there's a very particular question and you're given a broad answer. I hate that in teaching. The more specific the question, the more nuanced the answer should be. It can't just be like, God loves you. Like, yes, it is. It is simple. But that simple thing needs to be very considered. Because there's lots of simple things we can say. Why pick resurrection out of all those things? Resurrection is specific to the issue there. The gospel, yes, preach the whole gospel. But let me tell you, whether you know it or not, you're emphasizing a certain aspect of that gospel. When I'm with the youth and I'm, I'm preaching to the street-involved youth... I'm emphasizing depravity. I'm empathizing. Uh, I'm making them see that Jesus went through the crap that you go through too. That's where I just land because it's just natural there, right? And then there's certain seasons where I'll go to another place where I have to instill hope that it's not just always going to be in the, in the mud of things, that there's a hope, there's a resurrection, that, that we're not just in a society where we can say, oh, even God empathizes with you. If we stop there, then there's no hope, right? Like, oh, Jesus died. <laughs> but the resurrection is the thing that clinches it. So I have to know when to flex what, when, where, and who, right? And I think that's the, you know, I've heard um, the difference between the Logos word of God and the Rhema word of God, as you might have heard before. The Logos is the written word of God. It's always there for you. We can refer to it anytime. It's static, though. It's there. It is the living word, yes, but it's in words, Right? And it can speak to us in many ways. And then the rhema word, they, the word rhema tends to be a word for a specific time, a specific place, for a specific person. And improvisation is knowing when to say what, when, for how long, and when to stop, and when to end. So, on that note, let's... Let's end this session. Let me just pray, uh, and maybe I'll pray for the food a little bit. Oh, it's right at 12. Man. See, there's a spirit of God. Okay, so, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can look into the scriptures a little bit through this broad narrative of how messy it was for the disciples to function in this new world, Lord, and figure out how to, which we are so blessed to have now, a gospel that is applicable to the whole world. Lord, I pray, Father, that um, if there's any anxiety of the responsibility we have to discern in this society, Father, I pray, Lord, that um, we do not leave this session feeling a sense of burden, but, but feel um, deep conviction, and that conviction translates into what it, what it says, like, you know, your, your yoke is easy, right, and your is light. It's a weight. It's still there. It's still a yoke. It's still a burden, but it's, it's light, and it's easy, Lord. I pray, Father that the, the Holy Spirit can be the balm, you Holy Spirit can be the balm to um, the, the, the heaviness that we may feel um, of the responsibility. I pray, God, that you allow us to go in as we have lunch to have it in freedom 
and, and, and with ease, Lord God, and help us use all these things that are said this morning to sink in a little bit as we uh, move into the next, next round. So thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Jesse. Um, we're just getting lunch set up in the gym. Um, so you guys can head in there. I just encourage you, we have lots of seats um, set up, probably a few too many, so try and sit together. Um, you know, work on those relationships, the building blocks of the kingdom, and um, enjoy your food. If you have your kids here with you today, please go get them and bring them to eat with you, and then you can bring them back, uh, obviously, this afternoon for the, for the afternoon session. We're going to come back uh, together around 1 o'clock, so let's eat. <laughs>